Thank you for listening to the podcast of Bible Baptist Church. Please visit our website at www.southbaybbc.org for more information. We just read the verses, but just to kind of recap and uh, maybe paraphrase what's been going on, Jesus has entered into the city of Jericho, and uh, as he is going through the city streets, there's a big crowd of, around Jesus that are following him and maybe crying out to him, asking for help. And, and uh, so there's a big crowd of people, but there's one man that is there that wants to see Jesus. His name is Zacchaeus. The problem that Zacchaeus has is that he, he's a short guy. He's little of stature, and everybody around him is taller than him. He can't see Jesus. So he comes up with this plan. All right, I'm going to go figure out where Jesus is going, and then run up ahead in the street and climb up in a tree so that when Jesus comes by, I can see him. And I don't know exactly what Zacchaeus' plan was. Uh, was he going to jump down right as Jesus passes by or kind of cry out from the tree? The, the Bible doesn't really explain what he was planning on doing, I mean, maybe he was just planning on and taking a look at, at Jesus as he walked by, but anyway, as they come by, Jesus stops and he sees him and he says, come down, I'm going to go with you to your home. And he said, great, that's wonderful. And he made haste and he came down and he received him joyfully. But then the Bible says, they... Isn't it funny how it's always they, somebody out there, they saw it and they all murmured. You know why they murmured? Because Zacchaeus was a publican. You know what publicans are? Publicans are tax collectors. Now, I don't think there's anybody here that's a fan of taxes. Especially so, think about the tax collector. The person would come to you and collect taxes. Now, most people, when they pay their taxes, it gets taken out before you even see your paycheck, right? You get a direct deposit or you get a check. It's already deducted. If you, you know, earn $500, you already get, you know, a bunch of that taken out, sent to the government. They've already collected the taxes before you receive your paycheck or before the money hits your bank account. But in those days, that was not how they did that there would be somebody that would physically see you and collect the taxes from you. They would see you, and I don't know how they did all the calculations, but they would figure out the taxes and collect the taxes. Now, the way that the Romans would do the taxes is they would delegate these jobs, collecting taxes, to the local people. And uh, you could imagine that these local people would not appreciate their neighbors and friends and fellow Jewish, you know, members of the cities and communities collecting taxes from them for a foreign government, for the Roman government. And so you can imagine that they did not like these people at all. They, they, they were treated like traitors. How dare you collect money from us to give to the foreign government, the Romans? So they already did not like them. But on top of that, the way the system was built allowed for a level of corruption. Because the tax collectors, let's say that they would come up to you and they would figure out the taxes and say, all right, you owe $1,000 in taxes. Well, what they could do, of course, this is you know, not quote unquote allowed, but many would do this where they would say, all right, you owe 1000 but they would tell the people, you actually owe us 1200 And what they would do is they would take 1200 they would take 1000 and give it to the Roman government and keep the extra 200 so there's a level of corruption. So a lot of these publicans or tax collectors 
were rich. And Zacchaeus was a chief publican there in the city. So he was abundantly rich. And you could imagine that people would notice, huh, isn't it interesting how all these tax collectors are so rich? And you could imagine some people that are a little bit more mathy doing the calculations based on, you know, the regulations and figuring out, hey, these guys are overcharging us. But there was nothing you could do. Because if you challenged them, the tax collectors would simply say to the Roman soldiers, this man is refusing to pay his taxes, arrest him. And what could you do? There was nothing you could do. They would just take the word of the tax collector and so begrudgingly, they would have to pay them. So on top of the fact that they were collecting taxes for the foreign government, now you see that many of them were stealing money from their own people. And so these people were despised, they were rejected, they were not a part of regular society, they would be pushed out to the margins. And so publicans would have as their friends in their circle other publicans because nobody else really liked them all that much. And so here is this publican that is in the city wanting to see Jesus. Everybody else wants to see Jesus. And you can imagine that kind of social conflict that is there. And Jesus says that he's going to go with this, as these people say, sinner. And Jesus says in verse number 10, for the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Which begs the question, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. If you were to ask, where does God live? We know God is everywhere, but, you know, we might think that God lives in heaven. Heaven is a place of perfection. There's no sin in heaven, no mistakes in heaven, no problems in heaven. Jesus is properly respected and adored and exalted as he is the Son of God. If you lived in that place of perfection, no sin, no mistakes, no accidents, no problems, and you were there in heaven, why would you ever come here to this place of sin and mistakes and accidents? And problems. You know why Jesus came? He came for you. And he came for me. And he came for everyone who was lost. Because of the loss, Jesus came. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. And you know, today there are still people who are lost, people who are still in sin. People who have not been yet forgiven of their sin. They are separated for God, from God and are still in condemnation. And it is for those people that Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. So here's our health check today. Do we care for lost souls? That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus was here. And if that is why Jesus is here then surely if we will be more like Christ, we must care for what Christ cared for. The Bible says in John 3, verse number 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting 
life. Romans chapter 5 says, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So here's the health check. A spiritually healthy Christian is out there to win souls. His desire is to win souls. He's looking to win souls. He's praying to win souls. And if we will be spiritually healthy, we too must be out there seeking the lost so that they might be saved. So I want to see why soul winning is such a vital check for our spiritual condition. The first reason is because of our God's compassion. You're there in Luke chapter 19. Turn back a couple chapters to Luke 15. In Luke chapter number 15, Jesus is going to give three parables. He's going to give three stories about some things that were lost. The first parable is about lost sheep. In verse number one, it says, Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. So you can imagine people just like Zacchaeus, all these tax collectors, and everybody else that would be part of that circle would come, and they were there with Jesus to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes, these were the religious people, the, the, the elite of society, the scribes murmured, saying, this man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. This guy, Jesus, is being with these sinners. He's congregating with them. He's receiving them. And he spake this parable unto them, unto who? Unto the Pharisees, the religious, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness? And go after that which is lost until he find it. So imagine a shepherd. He has a hundred sheep. And so imagine at the end of the day, he's going through and he's counting his sheep. And he says, I know that I have a hundred sheep. And he goes through and he counts and he gets to 99 and he thinks, hold on a second. I have a hundred, but I only counted 99. And so you know what the shepherd probably does, just like all of us would do? We would start over and double check. So we start over again and start counting. One, two, three, four, and go and count it all the way through until he gets to 99 again and he realizes that is lost. Now what does the shepherd do? Does he just say, ah, oh well, I got 99. 99 is good enough. Sure, I lost one, but that's 99% that I was able to keep. I only lost 1%. That's okay. Well, that's not what the shepherd does, does he? You know what the shepherd says? He says, I have 99, but there's still one that is lost. I'm going to go seek, and I'm going to find. And so he goes out, and he leaves all the other sheep there together. Maybe he has another person. Maybe there's a, a sheep pen, and he leaves all the sheep there, and he goes out into the wilderness. He goes out into the fields. He goes out in the middle of the night in order to find the sheep. And when he have found it, he layeth it on his shoulders rejoicing. So he finds the sheep and he rejoices and he brings it back. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors saying unto them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep, which was lost. 
I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over 99 just persons which need no repentance. So you can imagine this feeling of a shepherd. Okay. Now, I've never been a shepherd, and I've never had sheep. I've never lost a sheep. But I think every one of us, we've lost a wallet, or we've lost some cash. It's kind of similar to the next example that he gives. There's another parable that he gives. Either, in verse number 8, What woman having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, doth not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she find it? You ever lose your wallet? Everything stops, right? You're like, it's got to be here somewhere. And you go check your usual places. And I've lost my wallet before. And I've lost my keys before. So much so that my wife thinks about giving gifts to me like on my birthday. All right, how can I give him something so he doesn't lose his keys and his wallet? And uh, I, I lose these things. And so, you know, I'm thinking, okay, maybe I left it at the church. You know, sometimes I take it out and I have to buy something online with the, uh, you know. And uh, so maybe I left it there and I'll come here and it's not here. And then, you you know, maybe it's in my bag. It's not in my bag. It's not in my car. I'm looking everywhere. I'm taking the flashlight and looking underneath the seat, looking everywhere for it. You know, when you lose something like that, you go diligently seeking and finding until you get it. And you could imagine this woman, she's lost the silver coin, a very valuable uh, piece of money. And so she sweeps the whole house, lights a candle and goes until she finds it. And when she had found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbors together saying, rejoice with me for I have found the peace which I had lost. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. So God is making the point, I rejoice when that which was lost was found. Just like you, when you lose something, it brings you some joy when you find it. The third illustration is one of a lost son. Verse number 11, and he said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. So this younger son is asking something that's absolutely absurd. He goes to his father and he says, basically, I don't want to wait until you pass to receive my inheritance. I want the inheritance now. I mean, imagine this young man. Imagine anybody saying that to their father or to their mother, to their parents. But that's what this young man is saying to his father. His father he's saying to his father, I don't want to wait until you die. I want the money right now. And the father actually divides it and gives it to him. So he splits the, 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 the inheritance. And he's got two sons. The older son has a part and the younger son has a part. And he splits it and he gives the younger his part. Verse number 13, and not many days after the young son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country and there wasted his substance with riotous living. So here's a son demanded the inheritance wickedly and then he go wastes it in a far country. And when he had spent all, so he's used up all of the money, there arose a mighty famine in that land and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. So he's sending him out into the pig pens to feed the pigs. 
Imagine this. He's received his inheritance early, wasted the whole thing, and now he's sitting there in the pig pen feeding the pigs. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. He was so desperate, he would eat anything. Even if it wasn't even food, he was willing to eat it. Verse 17 says, And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. He's saying, I'm a son, but even the servants of my father are better off right now than I am. I don't even have enough to eat. And so he says, I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. He's saying, I I've been so bad, I, I, I don't even deserve to be called a son because of how I treated you. I, I demanded my inheritance, I wasted it all away. I you know what, I I'll just be a servant. I'll come back even as a servant. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him, and the Bible says what? And had compassion. He saw this son that treated him so and still he loved him and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. So you can imagine that the son comes to these thoughts and a fairly rational kind of thinking, if I've done this, then, you know, I can't come back and, and just say, hey, dad, how's it going? It's been a while. He's, you know, I've really done terribly. Will you forgive me and receive me? I, I don't even deserve to be called a son. Just treat me like one of the servants. And the father sees him and he runs out and he receives him and accepts him. And the son says all of this to his father. And then the Bible says, but the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to be merry. So you can see with these stories, these illustrations that Jesus is giving, how that here are these religious people, they see these what they call sinners coming before Jesus, wanting to be with Jesus, wanting to listen to Jesus, and Jesus is accepting them and teaching them and wanting to help them. You can imagine the religious being, people, wow, you know. And uh, so here we have Jesus telling them these three stories about how God loves to save that which was lost. You know, when he's giving these illustrations, he's not just talking about a family relationship. He's not just talking about money. He's not just talking about sheep or a pet or something like that. He's talking about you and me. He's talking about us. You know what was lost? We were lost. When we sinned, when we left the Lord, we became lost. And God noticed that, God saw that, and God sought after us in order to save us. See, God wants to save people. He wants to save that which was lost. He wants to save every single man, woman, and child. 
Second Peter chapter 3 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so here is God's heart to the lost. I don't want them to perish. I want them to be saved. I want to give them another chance. I've given them so many chances already. I've given them the gospel, but I, I don't want to see them perish. I'm willing to give them another chance. And you could see that that compassion was also found in other Christians uh, there in the, in the New Testament. You see that Paul, as he writes in the book of Romans, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. You see that Paul, one of these great men of the, uh, of the New Testament, early there in the, one of the apostles, that his heart was the same as the heart of Christ, which was what? I want to see people to be saved. I want to go out and find people who are lost, who need the gospel. Mark chapter 10, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. So soul winning is a great health check for us because we know that that's why Jesus came. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. So that was the heart of our God, the compassion that he had. The second reason that we see that this is such a vital check for our spiritual health is because of the great consequences. Every one of us is a sinner, and that's bad news because sin has bad consequences. Romans chapter 6 says, For the wages of sin is death. Now, we know that every single one of us, we're going to die one day. Uh, maybe we don't always think about it. Maybe we don't want to think about it. But, you know, in the back of our minds, we all know that one day, every single one of us, we're going to die one day. You know, maybe it's going to be 30 years from now, 50 years from now, 80 years from now. I mean, who knows when uh, this will happen. But we all know that we're all going to die one day. But when the Bible says, for the wages of sin is death, he's not just talking about the physical death. There's something far worse that will happen in our sin. He describes it in Revelation chapter number 20. In verse number 11, John the Apostle was given a vision about what is going to happen one day for all those who are lost and have not trusted in Christ as their Savior. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. Imagine all of history, all of the great men and women who have lived on this earth, people who have accomplished some great things, all the way down to the most ordinary of people. Everybody is there standing before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every man, according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. You know why God is so patient to the lost? He knows the full consequences for sin. 
He knows the full damnation that is encompassed in sin and rejecting God and rejecting the word and and living in wickedness and following the way of the devil and following the way of the world and following the way of the flesh and being lost and separated from God. He knows the full consequences of that and he has compassion and he says, I don't want anybody to go there because of the consequences. They are so great. I don't want anybody to go there. I sent my son Jesus Christ to for your sins so that you don't have to go there because this second death is not a place that anybody wants to go. He says, I don't want you to go there. And even though we all deserve to go there in our sins, God says, I love you so much, I don't want you to go there because of the consequences of sin. That's why Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, for what what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for a soul? You know what Jesus is saying? It doesn't matter what you do in life, what you accomplish in life, what you receive here in this life. It doesn't matter how great the experience that you have in this life. If you are not saved, it is not worth it. It's not worth it. Because hell is coming for all those who are lost. But God gave a remedy blood of Jesus Christ, sacrificed so many years ago so that you might be saved from the consequences of sin. And he has entrusted that remedy to the church. Every year in March, there is a race to get from Anchorage, Alaska to the city of Nome. We call it the Iditarod. And uh, it's this 900-plus-mile race over snow and ice. There's no boats. There's no cars. There's no trains. There's no planes. There's, there's no snowmobiles. It's a race by dog sled. And contestants have, like, a pack of, like, 12 to 14 dogs and a sled. And that's pretty much it. They start there in Alaska. Actually, there's an official start a little bit farther away. And first one to get to Nome wins. Now, it seems like kind of a strange uh, kind of a race, especially if you've lived here in California your whole life and maybe you've never even seen snow. I have two kids. They've never even seen snow in person. And uh, so you might think, what, why would these people even do something like that? Well, the inspiration for this race was an actual real event that happened in the early 1900s. So the city of Nome is in Alaska. It's just south of the Arctic Circle. And if you're wondering why would anybody even want to live there, it's because they found gold in Alaska. You might have heard about the Klondike Gold Rush. That's in the late 1800s. They found gold in Alaska. And so people would risk going up to these northern cities in, in the hopes of getting gold. And one of these cities that uh, really grew was uh, the city of Nome. Well, the problem with Nome being so far north is that when winter comes, you can't access it by the sea anymore. It's frozen over. So you can't get there by boat. And it's not like, you know, they have nice snow plows that just clear the trails every single day whenever it snows. The only way to get to the city in the middle of winter after the snow starts to pile up and the, and the, and the sea has frozen over is 
by dog sled. So you have a sled and you hitch it up to a pack of dogs and then you go. And so that's actually how people would travel during these snowy, icy uh, winter months. And so one of these uh, winters in uh, 1924 going into 1925, there was a doctor in the city of Nome. The only doctor actually in the city of Nome. Uh, his name was Curtis and uh, he was diagnosing some children. They were getting sick, uh, they were starting to get a sore throat and thought maybe this is tonsillitis or something. And, uh, and so he was a little worried and it started to spread until eventually he came down to the conclusion, looking at the symptoms and seeing how things were going, that this was diphtheria. So he's made this diagnosis, it's the middle of winter, you really can't get to the city of Nome. The problem is, I guess there's an antitoxin, uh, a diphtheria antitoxin that you could use. Unfortunately, it had expired. Now, he had ordered a new shipment to come in the previous summer, but they don't have Amazon two-day shipping, okay? This is, you know, in the early 1900s. And so it took a long time, and it had not yet arrived there. So he knew it's not coming until next, next summer. But this is a problem. And I, I was reading, one of, one of the articles was saying that they estimated based on the number of cases and, and the situation that, that was there, that some people estimated the mortality rate could go up to 100%. The whole city is gonna get wiped out. This is a problem. So he sends a radio signal out and he says, we need help. And so they found some of these antitoxins in Anchorage, Alaska, or one of the cities, I think, near Anchorage. And they said, okay, we need to get it there. Here's the problem. They're 700 miles away. There's no boats, no planes, no trains, just these dogs and these sleds. The fastest anybody had made it was nine days. The problem was the antitoxin doesn't do well in the cold. And they estimated you have six days before the antitoxin basically stops working. It's so frozen, it's not going to work. So they figured we got to get it there. We have to save this town and save these people. And so they sent out a call. We want all of the best. They call them mushers. These men that are familiar with the dogs and, and the sleds, and they got 20 men and 150 dogs. And they started there in that city and passing it along Pony Express style. You know, they would go as far as they could, pass it on to the next person, and then they would go and until, you know, 25 miles or so, 30 miles or so, and pass it on to the next person. 20 people all along this route, kind of parked in different towns all along the way until they could get to the city of Nome. They've got six days to get it there, and they made it there in 127 hours and 30 minutes. Okay, the first thing I thought was, how many days is that? <laughs> All right, let me do the math. I pulled out the calculator. Five and a half days, they got it there. They warmed up the antitoxin, got it to the people, saved the town. They were cured. These souls were gonna perish, but they were rescued by the cure. Now you and I might not be living in snow and ice and riding sleds behind Alaskan Huskies, 
But there are people who are dying just the same, in need of a cure. And that cure is not an antitoxin that's out in some, you know, pharmaceutical somewhere. The cure is the gospel. And we have it with us today. There are souls that are perishing, and we have been given the cure. The third reason why soul winning is a vital check for spiritual health is because of the given commission. Matthew chapter 16, verse number 18 says, And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now, I love my church. And if you're a part of this church, I hope that you love your church as well. I love coming together on Sundays. I love singing together. I love fellowshipping together. I love just being together. I love doing things together, having activities and, and all of the events here of the church. It's wonderful. But why is God building a church? You know, you might even have some people out there that say, ah, you know, church is not for me. I'm a spiritual person, though. Well, God makes it very clear, I'm building a church. This is central to what God is doing. Why is the church so essential? Because he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You know why the church exists? So that we might take souls away from hell. Those that die, of course, they have perished, and, and, uh, but those that are alive, they're on their way there, and God says we can save them. I have given the cure. I have died on the cross. The gospel is available. We simply need to take it to them. That is the concern of the church. That is the charge to the church. We call it the Great Commission. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. You know, the commission of the church is what? To go. That is why we are here. We are gathered together here to hear from the word of God so that we might go. You know what God is telling every single believer here today? Go find somebody that is lost and give them the gospel. Invite them to church. Hey, start a relationship, get to know them so that you could share with them uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ so that they might know that there is a God in heaven that loved them so much that he sent his only begotten son to die on the cross. Yes, he died and he was buried, but three days later he rose again so that we might have eternal life. Whether it is across the street or around the world, as the song goes, the mission is still the same. Acts chapter 1 says, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and under, unto the uttermost part of the earth. Luke chapter 19, verse number 10, we read the verse at the very beginning, For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. That is the commission of the church. You know why we are here as Bible Baptist Church? We are here to tell people how they can be cured from sin. It's by the gospel. That concern also moved the church to pray. Jesus in Matthew chapter 9 says, But when he saw moved with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep, having no shepherd. He saw their spiritual condition and said, These sheep need to be saved and brought into the fold underneath the great good shepherd. 
And said he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. What should we do? There's so many lost people out in the world. And there's so few of us. What can we do? Pray ye therefore. God, there are lost people out there. And look at how many people we are. God, we need help. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that what? That he will send forth laborers into his harvest. And so that concern, it should move us in order to pray to God as we look out and we see the world and we see those that are lost and we see them in need of salvation, it should move us to say, God, there's so many lost people out there and so few of us. God, help us send more. First Timothy chapter 2 says, I exhort therefore that first of all supplications and prayers and intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all good godliness and honesty. So I don't know about you, but I think every one of us could uh, have some complaints against the government, right? Those that are in authority, whether it's your boss, whether it's the government, whether even your, your parents at home, or, or you know, whoever might be in charge and in authority, we might have some complaints against them. And, and God says, pray for them, that you might lead a quiet and peaceable life. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like a good thing. I want a quiet and peaceable life. Who wants a life where you're just disturbed all the time and, and the government is constantly giving you problems? We shouldn't want a quiet and peaceable life. But why should we want a quiet and peaceable life? So I could just build up my wealth and I live comfortably and have fun and an easy life? No, he gives a reason. Why should we pray for a quiet and peaceable life? For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Who will have all men to be saved? You know why God says pray that the government will leave you alone? You know why? So that you could reach people with the gospel. And that concern, uh, concern for the lost moved the early church to persist in pursuing the lost. He says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. So he says, here's the plan. You go and you teach them the gospel and you baptize them into the church and then you teach them the word of God. Why? So that we might go even further and reach more people, teaching all nations, going even unto the end of the world. Acts chapter 1 gives us the places, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Here are the, uh, the early church. Uh, the disciples are there in Jerusalem, and he says, you're going to be a witness to me in Jerusalem, but not just in Jerusalem. You're going to go to Judea, and then you're going to go to Samaria, and then you're going to go to the uttermost part of the earth. If you read the book of Acts and you see Paul the apostle, he goes to all these different places. He goes to the island of Crete. He goes to what is modern-day Turkey. Then he goes to modern-day Greece. Eventually, he goes to Italy, and he's there in Rome. Before he even gets there, he writes a letter to uh, the church that is there in Rome, and he says, whensoever I take my journey into Spain, you know what he's saying? I'm not going to stop in Italy. I'm going to keep going until Spain. And you know what Spain was at that time? 
the end of the world. They didn't know that there was anything beyond Spain. They thought, that's it. That's the end of the world. And Paul says, I'm going to keep going unto the end of the world. Peter, as he's writing his epistle, 1 Peter chapter 5, he says, the church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, saluteth you. You know what that's saying? Peter is there in Babylon. He's reached people with the gospel and he's writing this letter. So Paul, as he goes west, Peter, he goes east. So you see these early apostles that they're going out to the uttermost part of the earth. They're going as far as the land will let them in order to reach somebody. And that was the pursuit of the early church. They were healthy Christians. They weren't perfect Christians, but they desired to reach people with the gospel because they had been commissioned to do so because of the consequences of sin, and because they were just simply following the compassion of their God. How are we doing today? Are we healthy? Are we reaching people with the gospel? Are we praying for lost souls? Are we thinking about, I want to carry some invitations and the chance that I might run into somebody and I want to invite somebody to the church. Uh, Maybe I don't have a long time to have a conversation, but I I want to be able to give them an invitation so that they'll know there's somebody who loves them, somebody who cares about them, cares for their souls so that they might be saved.